Hello and welcome to Humanize the Hustle. I'm Alicia Slaughter, and I created this podcast for health-conscious corporate professionals, working parents, and entrepreneurs. Join me and special guests as we talk about the latest in mind-body wellness. Here, we believe that health and happiness is non-negotiable. And just a reminder, this podcast is for the purpose of education only and is not a replacement for medical help. Please seek out the help of a trained professional for help with your specific situation. Okay, now on with the episode. Hey, hey, welcome back to Humanize the Hustle. I'm excited to be joined today by Shauna Marie, who is a true embodiment of someone who brings a lot of human into her hustle. Not only is she actively working towards making our planet a better place through her teaching of health and mindfulness as a yoga teacher, but also has a full-time role at California Certified Organic Farmers, which you might hear us refer to as CCOF. Yoga and organic food are two topics that hold a special place in my heart, and I'm eager to hear Shauna's expertise and her story. I met Shauna at the yoga studio where I teach. Her vibrant energy and teaching style immediately caught my attention. However, as I dove deeper into her journey, I realized that there's much more to her story. Like I mentioned, Shauna isn't just an incredible yoga teacher. She's also a donor relations manager at California Certified Organic Farmers. Initially, I was curious to learn about her role in, sur- in supporting organic farmers, and I wanted to pick her brain about organic food to help convince the masses to go organic. However, as I prepared for today's episode, I quickly realized that her story extends far beyond that. I believe we all have a calling in our time on this earth to help make it a better place in one way or another through some kind of service or offering, and she embodies that beautifully. We'll get a glimpse into how she found yoga and meditation back in 2008, her transformative travels to India and Australia, and how she seamlessly integrates the path of yoga with her dedication to safeguarding the planet through her role at California Certified Organic Farmers. What resonates deeply with me about Shauna is that she is a wonderful example of embodying the practice of both yoga on and off the mat. Her commitment to both teaching and advocating for sustainable, holistic practices that benefit both us and the earth is truly inspiring. So gear up for an engaging and authentic conversation. We'll be diving into Shauna's transition from yoga mat to farm fields, exploring how the harmony of yoga, meditation, and organic farming can pave the way for a brighter future for all. Without further ado, let's dive right in and extend a warm welcome to Shauna. Shauna, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So I think we should just jump in and start from the beginning. Uh, I'm always fascinated by how people discover yoga, and maybe you can take us back to 2008 and share what prompted you to start practicing yoga and meditation and what led you down this path. Yeah, it's, first of all, it's really funny to hear you say my intro because like most of those things are true and I'm doing my best to humanize the hustle. I'm not sure it's super seamless, but in 2008, I was, I think I was 16. It must have been because I was driving a car at that point, living in Los Gatos and drinking like all the time. I know that people say that, but I was very actively engaged in a party lifestyle um, in a privileged community of abundance. And I had a lot of anxiety as a result of constantly using different substances to manage my internal world. And so I found yoga um, at Yoga Source over in Los Gatos. I started doing what was then called the Bikram sequence, which is now Hot 26. And at the end of every class, I would lie down and I would do mantra in my head, although I didn't know it was mantra. 
And I would say to myself, which is really funny, I would say, I am good. I am better. I am great, better than ever. And then as I exhaled, I would say, the past is gone. The past is dead. The past will not come back again. And it was like my first ever mantra that I realized later. I was like, oh, I was meditating. I was doing mantra. But yeah, that's how I discovered it. And it has been ongoing for me since 2008 um, in all the different places that I've lived. And so you're, you caught yourself getting wrapped up in a lifestyle and something clicked and you were like, I need to do something that's healthy to combat this. Or like you knew that there was struggle in your mind and you were just like yoga. Someone told me to go to yoga and it was going to help me or? That's a really great question. Addiction and different codependent tendencies run rampant in my amazing, lovely family who I love so much. And yoga was cultural, I think, growing up around a lot of stay-at-home moms who had partners of means who would go to yoga. So I watched moms around me go to yoga. And I was like, oh, well, that's that seems like something I could try. I never had anyone suggest it to me or recommend it. Um, I was doing some therapy, some like, you know, child therapy at the time because you're a teenager and you're a child. But yeah, no one really recommended it to me. It just I just kind of found my way towards it. Um, and then it took uh, another several years to really use it as a mechanism for maintaining balance. Um, but yeah, I always knew I needed something. I was from a very young age a seeker and really concerned with why we exist. Like I I was four years old running into my mom's room. I was like, we need to talk about forever. And this idea that our spirit goes on forever. And she was like, good God, lady, I just need to go to sleep. Um, so yeah, I think yoga and the spiritual parts of yoga always appealed to me as a place where people spoke pretty honestly about like, we're alive. That's yeah. kind of crazy. It's really interesting. So I didn't know the the addiction piece of your past. And that's like something too that um, actually is a big part of my past too and could be like a whole nother conversation. Oh. Like addiction runs in my family. Um, I didn't find yoga as early as you did. So it's always very interesting to me to kind of see like, was it the physical movement that, that you know, pulled you in or were you really looking for something grounding and spiritual? Um, and like for me, when I first got into yoga, it was more physical and it took me a while to learn mm -hmm. and to connect with the spiritual mind body part of it. Um, I just started going with a friend um, and I didn't know like how much I needed it. But I like at some point I realized like, whoa, this is the only time in my life that I actually stopped thinking like and, and ruminating and like going around and around in my head is when I'm doing yoga. And then I started realizing, wow, it it's really like calming for my mind. And then I started, you know, learning more about why and all this stuff. But anyways, the addiction piece of it is interesting. Um, and, and yeah, I feel like um, yoga is good for so many things. And, um, and just that you found it and, and tied it back to that, you know, as you were explaining it, you were in a rough place and it was like a place that you went to go feel grounded and safe and how intuitive it was for you to find this mantra and connect with, with that piece of it. So that's really interesting. It feels like there's a connection to, to helping you through addiction, which wasn't something I was going to, you know, talk to you about, but it does sound like there's a connection there. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say it's an ongoing place where I go to feel grounded because that part of my brain is yeah. there all the time and it's something that I can feed or something that I can 
nourish with practices like yoga. I did, I would say physical was like the entry point, quite frankly, because I wanted to sweat out the alcohol. Like that was my thought. I was like, oh, I got to sweat this out. I'm going to go to the hot yoga class, sweat it out. But then all throughout my teens and early 20s when I was at San Diego State, when things were really peaking in terms of substance misuse, I would go to yoga and I would feel, quote unquote, high after yoga classes. I was taking like a traditional hatha class with an instructor from Brazil. And I went up to him one time and I was like, I, I don't really know what's going on, but I feel like this is a good a good thing for me. And he was like, yeah, you know, you're you're moving energy. It was the first I'd ever been exposed to like mm-hmm. the energetics of yoga from an authority. And then throughout my rampant college years where I was on and off as a student um, dealing with my mental health and all that jazz, I took um, some time at West Valley Community College up here in Saratoga, Los Gatos. And I read the Bhagavad Gita for a comparative lit class. And I was reading the Bhagavad Gita and I was balancing a yoga practice that was less physical, more spiritual. And I just drove home and I remember thinking, I think I found something. Like, I have no idea what this is. I don't know what the Bhagavad Gita is. I don't know what Buddhism or Hinduism is. I went to Catholic schools. Um, I barely knew anything, but I was like, I think this is a path that I can follow. And then that kind of, that literature really like opened up the world of Ashtanga yoga, eight-limbed yoga, all these different practices and all these different teachers, Deepak Chopra, Wayne Dyer, um, who talk about like the intersectionality between mental health, the food that you eat, how you move your body. Um, And that was when I was like 20, just about, just after 20, after I got sober. So I got sober when I was 20 and I haven't been perfect in the last 11 years, but I've been mostly perfect. Um, But by 12 step standards, it has not been perfect, but that's Well, that's incredible. I mean, I cannot... Um, say how much yoga has helped me with my my mental health, my physical health, and um, just the way that I show up in the world as a a framework for approaching life. Um, and there's so much to learn. Like you just rattled off so many different things, you know, and different ways of of approaching it and learning it. And it is such an onion, you know. You peel away the the layers, and there's just oh, there's more, there's more onion, there's more to learn. Um, and it is a practice. And I think that um. I love that you were exposed to it, you know, early and it was something that has that it does something. I feel like it's a lifelong practice that sticks with you. And, um, you know, there are people who are like, I just don't get yoga. Like yoga is not for me. And I was like, oh, they haven't been exposed to it yet in a way that resonates, you know, and, and helps them understand like no yoga is for everyone. It is absolutely for everybody. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, and is helpful in so many ways. So I love that you um so you found yoga early on. It was something that, you know, really helped you through your high school and college years, it sounded like, and you kept on learning. And then at some point you decide to go to India. So tell me <laughs> things, you know, it took a while to progress, but then things progressed really quickly. And then you're like, I'm going to India. <laughs> it, that's true. Yeah. I began studying with my teacher, Jennifer Pru in Los Gatos pretty regularly. Um, I would say I was 20. I had dropped out of college the second time. So I was 22. And I was doing all the yin, all the restorative, really addressing underlying PTSD that kind of underlaid a lot of my issues as a teen um, and like CPTSD, complex trauma, and just being a highly sensitive person. But yeah, I was studying a lot from like 22 
to 25. Um, I had an emotional support animal. I was working at Lululemon where I learned a whole bunch about goal setting and goal coaching and Lululemon's approach to like staff training and then staff growth has so much to do with mindset. So they provided a lot of literature, a lot of audiobooks, a lot of communicate nonviolent communications trainings. And of course, they love yoga. So when I said, hey, I think I want to do a 200 hour yoga teacher training um, when I was 24 or 25, they were like, yeah, take the time off, go do go do a teacher training. And I was part time at school trying to finish my degree. So I did my 200 hour with Jennifer Peru in Los Gatos in 2017. And then immediately people kind of started asking me to teach and I wasn't really planning on it. Um, I had fantasized about being a yoga teacher when I dropped out of college. I was like, I just want to be a yoga teacher and travel the world. But when they started asking me to teach, I was like, me? Why? Um, and then for the most part, it's gone well. In 2019, um, my emotional support animal passed away. Love her so much. She's in doggy heaven. Um, but there was this like chunk of time where Jennifer and the program at Breathe in Los Gatos would credit you 100 hours or 90 hours if you traveled with her to a Buddhist or Hindu country and you were in a 300-hour training. And I was in a kind of, can I swear on here or should I not swear? I was in a fuck it mood with everything because I was like, my dog was like going to die pretty soon. I figured, you know what? Might as well do a 300 hour. What else am I doing? Um, I had just started working at CCOF at the time. So it was a big um, transitional period. And uh, I saw that she was going to India and I was like, hey, you going to India? And she was like, yeah, why do you want to go to India? I was like, I don't know, maybe. And I went to an informational meeting about it and I just went and I had never spent that much money on anything before. Um, it was a big trip. I was there for a month and we went to so many different sites of the origins of the practice. Um, that was really my first taste of realizing that I'm a white yoga teacher in California too, which was really helpful. And I'm still processing and learning a lot about what that means and how to do the practice service given the cultural implications of that. But yeah, went to India. Um, Per the like push of my new manager to my new manager at CCOF, I like I had gotten hired maybe three or four months before. I was like, hey, um, can I go to India for a month? And she had been to India and she had traveled to India to do a documentary about soil health. So she was like, absolutely go to India. We'll figure it out. And I didn't have that much vacation time. Um, so I took some unpaid time off, but it felt like quite divinely supported um, and everything just worked out. It was like found a great flight. There was no um, obstacles in the way. It was really just like an opening. And I was very scared. And I called an acupuncturist that I had because she's a spiritual gal. And I said, I, I have this chance to go to India, but I'm like really freaking out. India's a big, scary place. I had had a bunch of autoimmune issues not too long before that. So it was like, food, am I going to be okay? Whatever. And she was like, India does not call to everyone, but it's calling to you for some reason. So, you yeah. know, fuck it, just go explore. And so I went and it was so magical and I was so sad to leave. But yeah, that was 20, that was 2018 actually. And then I finished my 300 hour in 2019. So as a person, um, you know, deep in yoga practice, what would you say are some call out kind of moments for you in India? I de it's definitely on my list. And, you know, as a, as a practitioner and, a, you know, of yoga. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, yoga means so much more over there than it means here. It is so 
not about asana. It is so not about your handstand to transition chaturanga. It's not about that. It's about the lifestyle. It's about um, the yamas and the niyamas. Um, a lot of people there don't practice yoga. Like they see it as something weird that their parents do or that their grandparents do. So when I went, oh God, there's so many takeaways. We could do a whole other conversation about India. But um, what I felt there was a presence of the people that I met, which is not found here. And that could be a myriad of reasons, right? That couldn't that couldn't all be attributed to yoga and and these spiritual practices. But there's a level of presence that I found in everyone that I met there. Um, there's a lot more reverence around death and your loved ones and a different understanding and acknowledgement of death as just a part of life and this experience, which calls to me because part of the reason I practice yoga is to deal with living and then, you know, dying as it happens around us all the time. Um, so we went, I mean, we went to the Ganges. I would recommend that, the Ganges River. Um, we were in Varanasi. We were also there during Diwali. So there were a bunch of other cultural celebrations happening. And I think if you're just a person who does yoga um, in the West, it's helpful to go to places where it originated and realize like it's so much bigger than our little well-funded yoga studios and um yeah, it's it's just yeah. Hard. You you mentioned honoring the the cultural or origin of the practice, um, and just the overall, yeah. you know, um, breadth of the practice. And every time I teach, I I always try to bring some other element into it, and you know, remind the class that hey, that there's there's eight limbs of yoga, and we're really going to be focusing on two of them today, and to just like not forget that it's mm-hmm. you know to tie what we understand and the little we can offer in our short practices at the studio, you know, just a glimpse into those other pieces of it. And I totally agree with you. You know, um, anybody who practices for any amount of time, like I'm probably overdue, um, should should go and and do a, a pilgrimage, I guess, of sorts of just honoring, honoring that. So I love that you pointed that out. Um, I also love that you pointed out, you know, tr- um, trying to be a yoga teacher in in the West and honoring the origins of it, you know, the the white yoga teacher issue, um, I think is one that is is an interesting one to try to make sense of. Um, you know, and I guess the the way I approach it at this point is the best I do is just try to to honor the holistic practice in my teachings or or in my practice of it. Um, you know, beyond that, try not to butcher anything or or change the meaning of anything in some kind of weird way. Um but I love that you said that. I think it's really important for people to to think about that too. Um, so you you're actively um, practicing yoga. Um, it sounds like you're going through a lot in your teenage and your college years. Uh, it sounds like you had a challenging time graduating college, but it does sound like at some point you graduated and then you got the job at CCOF. So was that kind of like your first? Um, well, first of all, what did you go to college for? I ask myself that all the time. It, it, I never thought about it. It was like I went to a very competitive private Catholic high school in the Bay Area. Yeah. You go to college. It's not even a question of whether or not. So I actually got an athletic scholarship. I was a, a coxswain for women's rowing teams, which is a funny word. Um, and that was I've been made fun of for that <laughs> word a lot. Um, but it's the little person who yells. And I got a scholarship to go to San Diego State and I studied English literature and behavioral neuroscience. 
Um, San Diego State is an amazing educational institution for sure. Like their classes are top notch. Everything that you read on their website is true. And then everything that people say about that place is also true. So it is a deep, deep, deep party school. Um, I was pulled by my vices into Greek life. And um, yeah, I I do have a degree from San Diego State. Uh, The degree should have been completed in 2014. It was completed in 2016 um, with the help of some amazing professors and people who just understood that my journey was Mm going to look a little different. Um, But while I was finishing my degree remotely before it was cool or popular to do that, I was working at Lululemon. So I was um, working full time as a manager of the visual merchandise like department at my store in San Jose. Um, And I was going to San Francisco, finishing some degrees requirements at San Francisco State. This was 2016. Um, And I had worked since I was 15, which is also weird to think about doing work while I was doing all the other stuff. But yeah, I had worked at Petco Park when I lived in San Diego. That was like my first, I think, like real, real job outside of food service and being a waiter. And then I worked at Lululemon almost for four years. And then, um, yeah, I graduated. And I had this instinct one day to quit my job, which is very was very unlike me. But I had been living at home. I had been saving money. And I just I was like, I'm done. I, I know what I want to do. I know where I want to go. I want to work in the environmental nonprofit space. I want to live in Santa Cruz. I don't know how that's going to look, but I'm just going to figure it out. And I have some money saved, so I'm going to take some time to do nothing for the first time ever. And that's a privilege not afforded to most of the population. So I need to acknowledge that. And I just spent like months at the beach and playing piano and making my website and writing more um, and talking to people about how to get into the environmental nonprofit space when my degree is an English literature degree. Like it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And um, with these parameters of like knowing where I wanted to live, knowing what type of work I wanted to do, I just started talking to people that I knew. I said, hey, do you know anyone who lives in Santa Cruz? And I would just have informational interviews with people over the phone. Like I talked to my brother's friend who lives here and works at CCOF. And he didn't see any clear line for me to go to CCOF. He was like, yeah, maybe like Save Our Shores or some of these other places um, because agriculture is so specific. And then a few months later, an entry-level role opened in fundraising at the CCUF Foundation, which is the charitable arm of this larger organic certifier. And I was qualified and I got it. And then it kind of took off from there. So a lot of luck and support got me into agriculture with a degree from, you know, a degree in English. So you're like a master manifester, first of all. Let's acknowledge that. You just put it out in the universe. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, Lululemon, like, that's really, like, if you pay attention as an employee, and there's there's a lot of problems, you know, with the consumer culture and the, the commodification of yoga. We could do dissertations on that. But for the purposes of this story, like, they really teach you how to set goals and, like, write things out as if they're already true. So in, like, 2014, I did a coaching session with a store manager, and I wrote out, like, I live and work in Capitola, California. I work for an environmental nonprofit. None of that was true. And now it is. It's really weird. So yeah, yeah, manifesting happens. But there's a lot of other resources that come into that. And I love it. There's so many great themes throughout your story. And you keep on like mentioning things I didn't know that I want to like ask you about. Um, But I'm going to try to know. I'm going to try to stay on topic. Um, 
So you're working for CCOF. And so how long have you been there now? You've been there for quite a while. Almost six years. Right. Yeah. I got hired um, entry-level development associate February 2018. And then within three months, like the three people kind of above me actively involved in fundraising all went to other orgs. So it was a huge season of turnover. And then it was just me and one other person. Neither of us had had that much experience fundraising. And we were like, got to figure it out. So um, we, we've since grown significantly, but she and I worked together for that first two years to really get grounded. Um, and then I got a lot of opportunity to move up because of those staff shifts, which is, again, not something that happens very often for people. Um, but yeah, so I've been there almost six years and my title has changed uh, one, two, three times since yeah. so every two years. So um, you obviously learned a lot about organic farming practices and representing the the donor division um, and getting people to to donate and, you know, proving to them that it's a, a worthy cause. Um, but at, at some point you got the opportunity recently to go to Australia. So you've been there at CCOF for about six years. Yeah. Um, and maybe try to summarize that journey. Like, how did you end up going to Australia and paid for, right? It was a sponsor yeah. thing through your company. Yeah. So nonprofit organizations are known for being great with employee support and and staff enrichment. Not known for having tech salaries, but cool opportunities. Once you've been at CCOF for five years, at this is how it is now. I don't know if this will always be how it is, but you can apply to take an educational sabbatical. So you have to go to your department director and say, hey, here's what I think I should do. Here's the budget that I would like. And it's a very humble budget, but you have to work within those parameters and display what your learning objectives and your outcomes would be. You know, it's all very formal application process. And I knew my five years was coming up. I knew I wanted to do something, had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, but I asked my director who was the one person left with fundraising with me. So she and I are really close and I respect and admire everything she does. I said, Hey, what should I do? And she said, why don't you go to Australia? You know, all these Australians that you've built relationships with over the years, just see if they know a farm that you can go to a work trade on because the budget's not big enough to pay for housing. It really covers, um, flight and then food. And I was very scared by that. Again, like India, I was like, Australia, so far. What do you mean? Um, but I, I had, by chance, worked with Australians over the years who do a trade mission to the States every year. So they go to a lot of the farms that are also involved in donating to the foundation or might be certified by CCOF. And so our paths have crossed heaps of times. And so I reached out to one of them and I was like, hey, um, I could come and do a work trade on a farm for a month my interests are, you know, food is medicine, um, really interested in like honey and botanicals and also biodynamic farming, which is, is not it's not certified organic biodynamic. You might know, but is more involved with like the moon cycles and, and the phases of the planet and farming that way. And she reached out to someone who knew someone and they said, hey, write a write a one page cover letter essentially about why you want to come. And they have hosted woofers over the last 10 years. So they were accustomed to different travelers coming in. And I wrote them a letter. They said, yes, we got on a Zoom call for 30 minutes in November. And they said, yeah, come on, come on out. And so they put me up in a little cottage on their property 
in northern New South Wales. And I was gone for five weeks, spending most days farming or hanging out with the family. Um, I, I wish that I knew how to drive stick because I think at some points they were like, go explore the country. And I was like, I can't drive anywhere. Um, so it was a lot of stillness, which again, with the yoga, it's like the most stillness I've ever had that I wouldn't have been able to do without the practices of yoga and mindfulness. Um, and I'm still transforming and transmuting and integrating everything that I learned in Australia. I got back mid-May. Um, but yeah, that's how I ended up in Australia. And, and what did you, I mean, it sounds like you were able to tap into some some stillness there and, and maybe offer yourself a, a reset being so connected to just the earth and, and growing and all of that. Um, but anything in particular that you felt like was a big takeaway from your time there beyond that, maybe in relating to organic food or organic mm-hmm. growing? Um, yeah, I think as a person who studied literature, who never studied food, who never grew food, whose family didn't grow food, um, I came to my work at CCOF fairly ignorant of a farmer's day-to-day. And throughout the past five plus years, I learned more and more about that, but I'm still ignorant. And so living and working on an organic farm, 30 acres, where their sales channels are direct to consumer or retail for the most part. So they're they're not working too much with larger buyers. Um, but I know there's still so much more for me to learn. One of the biggest takeaways farming wise is just how hard farmers work. Like people say that and my peers and colleagues say that all the time and I say that all the time. But there's a misunderstanding if you're not physically doing the labor, if you're not they, they do it. They have to do everything. They have to do science. They have to do math. They have to like pitch and be retail marketing professionals to get their produce purchased. And then even once you have a contract agreement, you might not be able to sell your eggplant because it's not perfectly straight and perfect. You know, like there's so many intricacies of the food system, um, global and domestic, that you can't understand unless you've walked that path for even a short amount of time and like four-ish weeks is nothing. You know, they're they're doing this every day, all year long, not taking breaks, working with their spouse, raising a family on a farm, which is also where they live, which is also where they work, being part of a cooperative of farmers. Um, so yeah, just it increased my respect for all farmers, especially certified organic farmers, tenfold. And it's still... It's fueling the work that we're doing now at the CCUF Foundation. And I think there's a deeper understanding of how to better communicate our programs out to potential funders, but also um, just be able to relate to the farmers that I talk to and see right. all the time. And, and just in general, I think we're so disconnected from our food and where our food is grown, yeah. um, not only like vegetables and fruits or grains, but also animal, animal products. Like I feel yeah. like... I kind of feel like if you can't go and like kill your own animal, like, and you wouldn't be okay with that, you probably shouldn't eat meat. And I challenge myself mm-hmm. with that quite a bit. Like, could you kill this animal that you're eating? Because if you couldn't, you probably shouldn't eat it because you have to realize that like what you're eating is, is a, a being that had to be like live and die for you to eat it. And I guess the same thing with plants, right? It's like you could torture a plant, right. give it terrible soil to grow in you know, rip it out by this, you know, have some kind of commercial growing and um, 
you know, kind of getting into like why organic food is so important. And I love, you know, you just embodying the type of work it takes to get food from farm to table. It's, it is almost like a miracle and it makes it made even harder when you try to grow organically because you don't have, you're not using the chemicals. You're not, and you can maybe talk a little bit about this. Like, what does it mean? You know, what does it really mean when you go and buy an organic produce or organic food? Um, and maybe you can just speak to that um, in, in connecting, in, in the effort of trying to connect with your food more deeply. Like, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I do. And it's it's a lot more nuanced and boring than people know or understand. I shouldn't say boring. Like it is it is a miracle. It is fascinating. But the certified organic food movement really builds on thousands of years of indigenous farming practices, which is a system based approach to living on the planet. And most of those practices interweave rotational grazing or livestock in some capacity you sort of so we're talking about just certified organic this is oh i'm no 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 those are the the farm and land management practices of many um indigenous and native peoples before colonization and even then um you know industrial farming um large monoculture farming really didn't happen until the last couple hundred years in the U.S., um, California is a, a large ag state and has seen its fair share of monoculture farming, um, which really goes against a system's approach. So in the 70s, in the United States, CCOF and a few other organizations across the country were realizing there was a need to define what organic is because out in the marketplace, people would say organic and it kind of meant what the word natural means now. Like there's no, I could call something natural and sell it and have no legal ramifications. And for better or for worse, they went to the United States Department of Food and Agriculture and said, hey, like, can we have this be regulated? You know, very rarely do we see an industry say, hey, please regulate us. But they did that with the goal of creating integrity around this label and what it means to be organic. And so the organic standards, um, are very, very long, but in short, they ban the use of prohibited materials, so synthetic pesticides, all of the big, bad, scary petrol and oil-based pesticides that we saw born post-World War II. They require um, biodiversity standards. They require things like cover cropping, and um, they don't require cover cropping, but Basically, the organic standards are a system of practices and farm land management that are verified by third-party um, accreditation agencies. So CCUF is one of like 70 or something in North America that goes to your farm once a year, maybe more, makes sure that your organic system plan is um, what you say it is, which it is. And then there's all these different checks and balances to ensure that someone who's certifying something organic is actually doing it organically. But what I think most people don't understand is that there's this whole world of like regulation around organic. So it's not just another label that people can buy and pay for. You have so much paperwork. You have to submit so much proof of what you're doing to whatever and whoever your certifier is. And then all of the organic industry for the most part kind of keeps each other in check because if they see anything sketchy, Um, There's a really great reporting avenue through the United States Department of Agriculture so they can say, hey, I think that guy might have sprayed. 
And then usually that person can like lose their status as a certified organic producer. And you don't see that that often. But of course, there are going to be moments of bad actors. But yeah, organic farming is a systems approach to land management um, and soil health. And more and more, we're seeing conventional farmers um, at least adopt some of the soil health practices. They might still be using certain sprays to manage pests, but it ties in so much to like the human body and our human health because if you have a healthy immune system, you're less likely to get sick from a low-key virus. I'm not talking about big viruses, but you might be less likely to catch the flu. You might be less likely to develop autoimmune conditions, which is where my interest really peaked in it. Um, if you have a healthy system, and the same is true for farms and the land that we manage, like if you're growing um, certain crops that complement each other, if you're growing a crop that puts more nitrogen back in the soil or different nutrients back in the soil simply by existing, if you're taking care of um, your soil health and your water management practices, like the system is more resilient to things like climate stress or pests that could take out the whole crop for the season. Um, not as resilient to really, really extreme climate stress, but all of the studies over the last 30 years that have looked at organic farming systems, certified organic farming systems compared to conventional, indicate that they're so much more resilient to climate stress and pest stress. So I could talk about this for a long well, time. Well, you know, I love it. And, um, I, yeah. you know, one of the things that I'm hoping after listening to this conversation, people walk away with was is just a, a deeper understanding and a deeper conviction around, you know, purchasing and spending money on organic foods. Also, you know, um, understanding the importance of yoga. Um, and, and I feel like there's a, there's going to be a point where we come together and the two very much connect and we will make that connection here soon. Um, because, yoga is a an approach to life and i love how you have not only embodied that in your practice and in your um and in your studies of yoga but in your work tying it back to the organic food you know it's working for a company that is is so aligned with the preservation of our environment and the quality of our food um and and in that promoting that quality of our food it is the the health of everyone on our planet that it's eating that food um, and it is a sustainable system. Like investing in organic food is investing in the sustainability of our future and the sustainability of our soil um, in all the systems that you were talking about. And so that's, you know, um, I said a lot there, but I, there's so many ties as I was learning more about you to, you know, these connections and, you know, me being a holistic nutritionist um, and my passion about mm -hmm. just the idea of holistic health, like, so many of the things that we've already talked about are are pieces of the the puzzle, right? So it's um, mm -hmm. and yoga is one of those things I always just tell people like you know try to find your connection to it because it's it's so fundamentally important. And then when you are eating food and extending that lifestyle that lifestyle or that perspective, like choose foods that don't harm the environment, and those foods that don't harm the environment are then not harming you. So like the idea of ahisma right? And yoga is like non-harming. And so in everything that you do is in a, a non-harming approach, you know, in dealing with your mental health and, and applying your use of yoga. So it's interesting. And as I was getting ready for this, I was like, oh, like I said, I was going to talk to you just about organic food, but I'm like, no, there's a, there's a theme. Right. And this is why, you know, you're such an embodiment of all the things that are 
all the things that are good in the world and how <laughs> um no, no oh my it's gosh beautiful I struggles that you've brought, yeah like it's so human um and so anyways I'm just in trying to connect the bits and pieces of the story here um I just think it's it's so wonderful um to bring these things to life and embody them in a journey thank you I do feel so deeply supported by so many and for me the the yoga the food is all one like in my when I first got sober my body was a wreck I had insane autoimmune issues as a complication of PTSD and eating like dirt and smoking cigarettes and um my acupuncturist when I was 20 was like hey here's some herbs I was like what's an herb and my Kaiser doctor sorry to sh- I, I, they provide great health care um, but they weren't equipped to address the system, right? They they treat human health similar to how a conventional farmer might treat a pest but by wanting to spray it. Like, let's just treat the symptom and not the cause. And they wanted to put me on pregnazone when I was 20, which is a really um, high anti-inflammatory steroid that can cause a lot of other um, unwanted issues with your organs. And that's how I found organic food. I had an, um, an Ayurvedic health coach in Los Gatos, Jana Kilgore, who also used to teach at Pleasure Point Yoga, um, who now lives in Kauai, but she was like organic. And I was like, what do you mean? And then I read Paleo for Autoimmune and I was learning about bone broth and learning about good meat and, and Chinese medicine and how certain health conditions do require certain nutrients, however you want to get them. Um, and so for me, yeah, they are all interrelated. The farmers that we work with and support are healing everyone with their food. Like it, th- their food heals. And then the practices of yoga, mindfulness, community support, like the community is the biggest piece, I think, for me in healing, like all these different people that showed up that I had access to, that I had financial access to, like emotional access to, um, again, something not afforded to everyone. But these different coaches and teachers that were like, hey, actually try this or try this or take this aloe drink. And and you just start to like marry the two together. And there is no separation for me because farm health is human health. Um, and then in a different conversation, there's the, the social and cultural inequities and access issues because not everyone can go to their local bodega or market and, and source organically. Um, but for those of us who can, uh, it really does support a growing movement and makes different initiatives more possible where larger organizations may be able to see like the economic benefit of organic because it is proven to decrease crime rates and increase like local regional incomes, um, providing year-round labor for farm workers, which you don't often see on a conventional farm. So for those of us that do have these choices understanding that those choices add momentum to healing all around is yeah great that's beautiful and you know you you brought up a couple times just the um you know that uh we are coming from a a place of privilege of white privilege and when we say a lot of these yeah um you know you growing up in Los Gatos and and I grew up in in Aptos so you know I wasn't ever you know with I wasn't ever without um, but you know, we, I think everyone has their, has their struggles. I can relate with a lot of them that you have shared. And, um, I just think we do, we do the best we can with what we have access to. And I think knowledge is, is power. And, um, and so for someone who maybe doesn't have the means and the access, um, 
you know, I think always learning and keeping yourself open to listening. And that say, even if you only have access to a Walmart, you know, you could still. Oh, Walmart's right. actually great. They, Sorry. Yeah, I, I haven't <laughs> checked uh, how much organic food there is at a Walmart, but I, I mentioned that because I, I think there's um, access, you know, throughout at least the United States um, to Walmarts. And so, um, you know, maybe this reaches the the right person and, and they decide to make that investment. And, you know, maybe they don't get something else that was, you know, that was less mm-hmm. nutritious and they decide to just invest a little bit mon- more money in whole organic foods where they can. And not everything needs to be organic. But um, and I'm actually curious what you think about like the dirty dozen. You follow that and have you heard anything regarding whether the dirty dozen is is an accurate representation of what you should focus on for organic? It's a great question. It comes up a lot. It's a wonderful marketing yeah. strategy, the the people who invented it. Um I haven't studied it enough to make a super educated claim about it. But what I do know is that any fruit or vegetable sprayed with um, a pesticide not allowed in organic production um, can have like compounding effects in an immune system. So eating one non-organic avocado, you're going to be fine. But it's this cumulative effect for those of us living in developed nations where we're exposed to those chemicals we're exposed to other heavy metals. We're exposed to hormonal. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but the things that cause hormone disruption. Endocrine disruptors. Hormone disruptors. Thank you. Endocrine disruptors. Um, it's the the dirty dozen. Um, I I would just try to buy organic whenever you, I wouldn't worry about like yeah. what it is. You know, especially if you're trying to feed your family. You know, I I wouldn't get too caught up in the different produce i think the ones on those lists are super high water content which is part of the reason they're on those lists like strawberries um and some other berries because it's harder to filter out all of the pesticides you know there's different opinions on it but um yeah i would just try to buy organic if you can um if you can't don't shame yourself and don't feel bad um but just understanding that an investment in organic now might mean um less healthcare costs later um we have we have someone in our world who always says like you know pay now or pay later type thing which is very it's not a a catch-all or a cure-all by any means but i think about that when i take some time or some money to do these other like self-care practices like if i take 30 dollars to go to the infrared sauna to deal with like oh i think i might be coming up with something or coming down with something that i'm saving my trip to the doctor, I'm saving like um, a copay cost. I'm saving a potential medic- yeah. medicine cost. So just making those choices, knowing that you could make those choices doesn't mean you have to. But yeah, again, like you said, the knowledge yeah. piece. So I'm going to cover, I'm going to ask you about two kind of big topics that I feel or two big kind of buzzwords right. that I hear quite a bit that I think are are two big reasons why people should consider eating more organic. And one of them is uh, GMOs. So maybe you can speak a little bit and, you know, I, if many people have heard about GMOs, they seem to be a big concern. They seem to be a big kind of buzzword. I'm curious to know kind of what you have to say or what you think about GMOs um, and how buying organic helps um, avoid them. Yeah, well, they're banned in organic production. So you're, you're not going to get a single GMO in anything certified organic. Um, We had a marketing campaign many years ago that was um, organic is non-GMO and more. Um, 
again, I'm not a scientist. I'm a person who eats food yeah. who came into this work because I care about it, not because I have any degrees or authority to speak on it. But for the most part, genetically modified organisms come from genetically modified seeds, which come from really large companies that then sell the seeds to the farmers. And then those seeds are more resistant to pesticides. So it's part of the cycle of not caring for the soil, turning around um, crops that need to be sold that are then consumed. I'm trying to say this really delicately, but yeah, genetically modified organisms. I really don't think about that much anymore. Um, but when I was early in my days as someone recovering from really active autoimmune issues that still flare up occasionally, I didn't want to eat anything that was going to cause or add to my systemic inflammation. So it goes back to that like dirty dozen thing. Like I'm sure if I had a GMO you know, popcorn tonight, bowl of GMO popcorn, one bowl is not going to hurt me. But if I'm already struggling with a compromised immune system, health issues, I don't want to add those chemicals. I don't want to add um, potential genetic modification, right? Because like our bodies get confused when they read that stuff because it's not how we have evolved over the last however many years. It is a newly introduced way to eat and consume food that isn't still fully understood, but a lot of research and data indicates that it's not healthy for you nor the planet. And one thing I wanted to plug to about organic farmers before I forget is that if you're choosing to support um, organic farmers, you're not just um, making yourself and your family healthy, but you're also investing in the health of frontline communities, of farm worker communities that aren't being exposed to these chemicals. Um, chemicals that uh, follow farmers back home into their houses and affect um, developing humans a lot more than they affect adult humans because they have smaller immune systems, they have smaller organs, developing brains, etc. So it's beyond your health and your family's health, but also the health of the people who grow the food, who pick the food, who spray or don't spray, depending on your choices. So you you can and should hopefully understand like how you can play a role in that in a very small way. But if we all do it a little bit, it's yeah. just a needle. And um, that's another good point. Um, yeah, you see, you hear about so many things happening to the field workers of conventional farming fields. Um, and you see them out there in like hazmat suits, you know, spraying the food we're going to eat. And you're just like, how, how can that be okay. You know, um, I've seen those pictures and that just spoke volumes to me of like, here's another reason. Like if the people that are spraying and growing your food are wearing a hazmat suit, you probably shouldn't eat the food that comes off of that. Yeah. And I mean, they're not doing it because they're bad people. The The farmers who are choosing to farm that way aren't doing it because they hate the soil or they're these bad evil people, but they're, they're part of a system, a systematic issue that our nation has developed over the past however many years. And the people who are, are spraying that are doing it for a paycheck, often coming from economically disadvantaged or underserved communities. And they want to send their kids to school. They want to pay to feed their kids. You know, it's it's part of these issues that are much larger than um, like do or don't do that. Not, not black or white at all by any means. But yeah, I'm sure. And I've talked to a lot of them and the research indicates that they yeah. love to not be spraying those. And many of them that we've worked with who used to maybe work on conventional or non-organic operations, um, they would come home and they would like change in the garage and, you know, shower outside or do all these things so that they can hug their kids when they come inside. 
And then once they transition to organic or maybe find work on an organic operation, come right home, hug the kids. Kids can come to the organic farm. They don't have to wear masks. They can just be in nature, talk to a butterfly, talk to a So, so super important. Um, And so GMOs, I've also heard that GMOs, um, because of their, their makeup, are not as nutritious because they're they're genetically modified. So, you know, the most nutritious are usually like the heirloom varieties. Um, would you agree with that? Do you know anything about that at all? You know, just like the, not only the the quality of the soil that we're growing in to make sure that the the nutrients that come up into the plant, you know, are adequate, but then also if you're getting GMO-based seeds compared to like an organic heirloom varietal that actually there's and I don't know exactly what the reasoning is and maybe you can speak to it but that that also kind of furthers the health of our environment is to have these species that are a little bit different from each other and not exactly little carbon cut cutters of this one plant that's not going to have like any problems and do exactly what it's supposed to do like that just isn't healthy either yeah, it's it's so layered as most of my answers are because you need to feed a growing population and that can be done organically. So we produced a research report a few years back that detailed the different benefits of organic, um, citing all of the latest research, peer-reviewed scientific literature. There needs to be more peer-reviewed scientific literature. Um, organic specifically has been underfunded, but most of the studies indicate that organic produce, organic, um, organically produced livestock, organic milk, all of these different commodities that are grown organically are much more nutritious than their conventional counterparts that provide many higher nutrient profiles. Um, All the different vitamins and minerals generally are higher in organically produced products than conventionally produced products. If you ask someone else, they might have a different thought. They might be able to cite different studies, you know, but what I try to do is look at was funding the studies, um, how, how the studies were done. Again, I'm not a scientist. I just work with a lot of amazing people who share these tidbits with me that I bring out into funding meetings. But um, yes, it is more nutritious. Um, genetically modified foods are interesting to say the least. And I understand why someone would think that they are necessary to feed a growing population. But again, if you can choose, I'd yeah. say just don't. Just go for support and right. So to to confirm, um, if you're buying organic, there's no GMOs in that food. No, it's banned. It's not allowed. You like what what people don't understand. Like there was a farmer. I don't know his name. I don't know much about it. But it was in the 90s or no, it was after the national organic standards had been adopted. So it would have been after 2001. And basically, they were using the word organic and and not doing it organically and got caught and and even if that happens today it's like the the fines are insane like you could be fined up to ten thousand dollars per individual false claim right so if you're selling even 30 items in a month for a very small like you're that's a 30 three hundred thousand dollar fine i'm not a math person but like there's so much um integrity around anything organic so no gmos are banned in organic production you you cannot and you do not use GMOs if you're an organic. So I think that's a big benefit. Um, thank you for all that. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was glyphosate. So um, that's another buzzword. Mm-hmm. And hopefully I said it right. Hopefully I said it for right sure. that time. I butcher it sometimes. Basically. <laughs> okay. Glyphosate. 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 Whatever. Glyphosate. You said it kind of fast. Okay. Because so cool. um, it's spelled, it's spelled 
glyophosphate, but it's glyphosate. Anyway, say glyphosate, yeah. everybody. Okay. Yeah. Could you provide just a kind of a brief overview of what you know about that? Um, and um, sure. and explain like why people should care and be aware of it. I, Yeah, I think it's a really great word yeah. and a great, um, I'm not going to call it a great pesticide because it's not. But it is one of the most popular pesticides that have got that has gotten a lot of attention because it was the primary ingredient used in um, Monsanto's Roundup, which was marketed and sold to a large international community of home gardeners saying this is totally safe to use. Um, what I will say is that glyphosate is one of hundreds of really gnarly pesticides that are banned in organic production. Um, many of these pesticides, and I might butcher this word, their their primary um, way of killing pests is something called a neocorticoid, I think is what it is. But basically what it does to like a bee or a butterfly or a bug uh, that you don't want is it um, goes so deep into their nervous system that and it kills them from the inside out, right? So that's that's one little tiny bug getting a little tiny exposure. But it goes back to this... Um, checks and balances of how much chemical exposure you might want or not want in your life. And glyphosate is, again, one of many um, pesticides that we are exposed to. If you live near a golf course, if you live near a school, if you live near a large yard, it's probably being treated with glyphosate to this day, unless you or other local officials have banned that. So it's a little less it's not less of a concern for the food system because it is used in the food system too, but the people that are in my world are much more concerned about a lot of other pesticides that don't have these catchy names um, that are polluting our water and our air. And that's what glyphosate. Um, and there's some amazing organizations working to change that. Um, Non-Toxic Neighborhoods is helping local people and organizations make these changes at the local level by providing policy support so your kid's school won't have glyphosate sprayed on the soccer field and someone who's a growing human might not get Hodgkin's lymphoma. You know, there's ties of glyphosate um, and some of these other pesticides to really negative human health outcomes, fatal human health outcomes. Um, there was a very large uh, lawsuit that just got settled um, for a man who was, um, I think, a schoolyard maintenance person who sprayed glyphosate every single day for 30 years and then had really devastating cancer um, that they could kind of say for sure was caused by that chemical exposure. So yeah, glyphosate, one of many uh, bad things that we need to get out of the system. And a lot of these chemicals are not allowed in other countries. So in Europe, like, you just can't even use it. Even if you're not a certified organic farmer, there's different parts of Europe that ban chemicals that we don't ban in the United States for a myriad of reasons. So that is my glyphosate spiel. And I will say everything that I say is my personal um, thing and not representative of any organizations that I appreciate that. No. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think in summary, uh, a couple of things, I think, you know, you're spending your, your, where you spend your money matters not only for the, you know, environment, but also for yourself. And um, I think you've mentioned quite a few reasons why people should care about, you know, their food being organic. And 
one of the things that I always, um, you know, say to my clients is your, your genes load the gun and your environment pulls the trigger. And so it's, you know, it's a, it's a game of really trying, if you want to be healthy in this world, you really need to decrease your toxic load. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really passionate about organic food, not only for the benefits of keeping a, you know, sustainability in, in our, our food systems, um, but also, you know, just because if you're eating a lot of conventionally grown food, you are getting exposed to a number of chemicals that is in addition to the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of chemicals you're getting exposed to every day, whether you're taking your kids to school and walking across the lawn or you're getting in your car and you're breathing in the exhaust from your car or you're drinking your water and maybe your water's not filtered. Um, and it adds up over a while. So, you know, I think it, this is one of the areas I think people should really consider um, being more mindful in because it is just so impactful. That $1 you spend or $5 you spend on organic food is is a vote for yourself and like for our environment. Um, but I, I think we talked about a lot, a lot of reasons why. So hopefully people are feeling inspired in in one way or the other to, to go organic um, more. Um, but, you know, so you, you have a full-time job, which sounds like you are very involved in and um, got to travel to Australia. And then on top of that, you're a yoga teacher. And I can very much... Um, you know, understand that hustle um, because I, I've done the same. You know, we have this calling um, uh, to to teach and share the the practices that we find so so helpful to us. And so, how like what do you take from your practice in balancing all of that? Like, you know, um, it's a lot. You put a lot out there into the world, and so what helps you stay grounded and focused in doing all of that? Yeah. Um- I don't know. I mean, I, I meditate a lot. I think um, tying it back into the systems approach, right? Like it's a systems approach to my life. And I'm so lucky to have such amazing family and friends that I can like spend time with. And I spend a lot of time with my friends and my family, like not working, not teaching yoga, a lot of time in nature, a lot of time of outside. I don't have kids, which I think contributes to my current career success. I would imagine if I had a family that I had to raise and care for, it would be much more challenging to stay grounded and present and centered. Um, I do my best to set really healthy boundaries. So if there's just a person or a situation that isn't serving and is really just... mm, I don't want to say toxic because I think it's overused, but I can, I say no a lot. So the people who are in my life, friends and family, they understand that I might not want to do something or like if I'm out to dinner and it's eight o'clock and I'm tired, like I'm going to bed because I go to bed early and I get up early. Right now I'm not watching any TV or movies for the first time in I don't even know how long it's been almost two months. And since I did that, because before I was feeling it, I was really like, oh my gosh, this is a lot my current like balancing practices are not enough. And then I just had this insight. I was like, well, just stop watching TV for a little bit and see what happens. And I have so much time when I don't have TV. Like I I miss Vanderpump Rules and I miss Kardashians and I miss all of my um, shows, which I think also help like shut my brain off. Like it's like this huge uh, pendulum of like being really active and engaged. And a lot of it is quite depressing. Like the the facts of how we've gotten to where we've gotten really hit me a few years ago. Um, 
like the year before the pandemic, I was just walking around like, oh my gosh, everything's terrible. Everything's bad. Um, so I needed like a mind numbing agent that wasn't a substance. So reality TV served that purpose. But yeah, for right now, just so much outdoor time and a lot of prayer, which is, you know, not what everyone wants to hear. But um, I do. Why doesn't everyone want to hear that? Spirit and I. Because it's a it's a personal choice. Not everybody wants to pray or hear the word prayer. It's loaded for a lot of people. Um, it's rooted in a lot of kind of weird ways that humans have. It's it's not the best word for everybody. But um, I pray a lot and I journal a lot. And when things are really, really hard, I have learned that I can ask for help. So I go to therapy. I have people around me who can hold me when I'm feeling like, wow, there's too much going on. I'm, I need support and help. So I think it's this, again, a system of us holding each other up when we need it and vice versa. And so I think community is just I'm just so lucky to have the people in my life and they really keep me balanced. It's everyone else, I think, that does it. (laughs) And I just listen. So let me know if I I'm going to summarize what I thought I heard. So I'm hearing I'm hearing community is really important. I'm hearing nature is really important. I'm hearing um, saying no is really important. Um, Making sure that you're surrounded by high vibrational people that that feel good to you. And and yoga, always more yoga. <laughs> you didn't say it, but I threw it in there. Yeah. A lot of alone time, ironically, too, just like not being stimulated, right? Like nature for me is that, like I'll go on a hike by myself. Yeah. It's just quiet. And you can just drop into a different yeah. brain state. And one thing I'll say, that, um, I have lots of little sayings in my brain. And so a lot of times, like when you said prayer, um, I was born with... um a Jewish non-practicing father and a Catholic mom turned atheist. I had absolutely like no spirituality at all. Like my my dad taught me the Lord's Prayer as like, you know, as a, a Jewish. Um, like I had like no spirituality at all. Um, and so I very much don't, I, I don't have any kind of bad association with the word prayer or the idea of prayer um, because I, I, I okay. pray, but I, I pray to, to a a higher, a higher power, a spirit, right? It doesn't have, doesn't have any kind right. of association with anything. Um, just because I didn't, I don't have that experience. But I know people can have a bad experience. Any, but what I love is this one saying that says, um, "You pray to ask questions, and you meditate to hear the answers." And I just love that. And I was like, "Oh, that that resonated with me." So when you said prayer, I was like, "I love, I love the idea of prayer because sometimes you do have to like put it out there into the universe." And then in meditation, I feel like I'm receiving the answers. So mm-hmm. kind of tying it back to a good, happy place. Maybe that will resonate with somebody. But um, that really resonates with me and in, in how I approach prayer, not having any kind of religious background or association with it. Um, so when you said it, I had a very good reaction because I was like, yeah, I love that. Good. But I do like yeah. to that people don't. So to to wrap things up, we've talked about a ton. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared. I really love your perspective on on so many things. Um, so if you could kind of distill your experience and your path, and I feel like people listening to this could take so many different things from it. You know, kind of like uh, and and I have a nineteen year old too sure. right now. Um, which when I was listening to how you were kind of your your struggles and trying to find your path and 
struggles with mental health, you know, it just gave me and seeing and hearing the rest of your story gives me a lot of hope for some of those, some of those, you know, uh, early adults, um, young adults that are trying to make their way, you know, you just, you never give up. And, and there's, there is, um, there's so much to look forward to. And just because you're struggling at the moment, it doesn't mean that things can't just turn out beautifully for you. So I, I love that part of your story. But if you could maybe distill like a theme down to like a single theme in your life um, that would maybe help someone embarking on a journey, um, you know, to to find and they're really tied like you were instinctively drawn to yoga and the sustainable living. Like what would your advice be? Like how how would you help guide someone? Like a 19? Yeah, I mean, it could be a 19-year-old. Um, it could be someone later in life. Like, I didn't really find this path until I was in my 30s. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't have any exposure to spirituality, to yoga, to mindfulness. Like, um, I had a pretty kind of chaotic upbringing in my 20s. I was a young mom. I was working full-time. Like, I didn't have any any time to even, like, consider, like, any of these things that we've talked about right now. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, as I got into my 30s, I really started opening my mind up to this idea that I could find peace and that there was something out there that could help me find peace that wasn't, you know, um, that was broader than just going and, and complaining and talking to a therapist once a week and crying. You know, there was, like, more to the story. So, you know, someone that is drawn to this path, like, how, how do you get started? Like, how do you stick with it? Um, how do you find heart centering work? Like all the things you're doing one and maybe leave us with a parting word of advice. I know that's, that's a, a hefty, a hefty question, but. Yeah. And I, um, as a teacher, a yoga teacher, what I attempt to do with my students or the people who show up to my classes, I won't call them my students, but I try to guide them inward, right? So my path is mine. Your path is yours. There is no one size fits all for how to find your path, but it's always right there. Like learn to listen, learn to shut up and listen to your thoughts, to what the people who love you and the people who really have your best interests at heart have to say to you. Um, and trust that you will be given clues that will help you untether the path. That's many metaphors, but like there's clues abound, right? Like the Bhagavad Gita. I just had a feeling. I didn't know what the F it was. I was like, I was just like, I don't know what this is, but I have a feeling. Like those moments where you have a feeling about something, like I feel like I might be good at this. I feel like maybe anything that's like an internal instinct that comes from a really soft place, right? Not a voice that's like, I have to do this or I should do this or society tells me this, whatever. But listening, there's a quote, I don't know who it is, but like listening to the soft, still voice within. Because um, I don't know what that voice is, but everybody's got it. Everybody has that little voice, whether it's Jimmy Cricket or Allah or like whatever it is, there's a voice in there inside each of us that has messages for us. So like you said, when you're in meditation, you hear maybe it's that voice. Maybe it's maybe it's a different voice, a voice from your ancestors. I don't know. But developing enough discernment to listen and to listen to how you feel. And I think what's beautiful about yoga and like body work integration practices is that you can start to understand how you feel versus how the world wants you to feel, expects you to feel, etc. And so just listening to your feelings. And then those can't always guide the way because we have 
life and you might be a, a young single mom or a young mom um, or have a whole different host of reasons why you can't act in that moment. But just taking daily action, like based on those little voices, like maybe I'll take a different route to work today. Just change it up. Do one thing a day that scares you. That was another thing that Lululemon taught me. Like when I was really trying to make the shift, it was like, and every single day I was like, does this scare me? Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I've now pivoted away from that because in inner child work, um, my little girl was like, can you just stop for a second? Like, stop pushing me. So I was like, okay. But yeah, just listen to your inner voice and um, develop a really strong connection to yourself because there's so many voices that want to tell you how to live your life and want to tell you what you should do and what your path should be. And they don't know because they're not living your life. You're the only one that's living it. So it makes the most sense that you would be the one who knows. And if you don't know, get really still, get really quiet, find people you trust. That's not distilled. No, I love it. And actually, it reminds me of another saying, and I forgot who said it, but the the quiet the quieter you get, the more you can hear, which is a, another another uh, nod to yoga, the yoga practice and the power of it in, in getting quiet um, in your mind. Um, and shout out to Lululemon before we wrap, wrap up here. Like they sound like a great place to work um, and really helped you on your path and invested so much into you. So, um, you know, that's wonderful to hear that they're such an awesome um, company. So that's in wrapping up, how can people find you? Where are you on the internet? Oh, yeah, on the internet. Um, I'm on Instagram at Shauna Marie Yoga. I'm online www.shaunamarieyoga.com. It's S-H-A-W-N-A-M-A-R-I-E. And my agricultural work is more on LinkedIn, so you can find me on the LinkedIn platform. But yeah, Instagram and my website. Instagram is usually where I'm posting. I really, really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you so much for being here. I know we went a little long, uh, but thank you so much for uh, all of your wisdom and sharing of your story. And uh, I'll see you in class soon. Thank you for listening to Humanize the Hustle podcast. If you would like to get in touch with the show, email me at myalchemylife at gml.com or follow me on Instagram at wellnesswithalicia. And if you like the show, please share it with someone you love and make sure and give us a five-star review. Talk to you next time. And remember, health and happiness is non-negotiable. Non-negotiable.